saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Den. This is Dan David joining you again with the pack. We have Carl, our sound engineer. God help us all. Uh, no interns or no analysts today. It's just me and Carl. So who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> I will say that we have a great guest, a very interesting guest, somebody from the regulatory side, at least at one point in his career, Jordan Thomas, who is now a partner and chair at whistleblower representation practice at Labaton Succoro. Am I saying that right? It's Labaton Sucharo. Okay. Quite frankly, Jordan, you could have made that easier for people. Like, you know, you could have made it, you know, Jordan and Thomas, but it's yes. Labaton and Shasharo. Okay. So uh, Jordan comes to us with a great amount of experience that I think we're all going to want to delve into, but it starts with. You know, he was in law school and he worked as a stockbroker. So he was always in the investing game. He began his legal career as a Navy judge advocate on active duty and recently retired as a captain in its reserves law program. Jordan was a trial attorney at the Department of Justice, my old job, uh, where he specialized in complex financial litigation involving the FDIC and the Office of Thrift, Thrift Supervision. At the Securities and Exchange Commission, where he served as an assistant director and previously as an assistant chief litigation counsel in the Division of Enforcement. Wow. Mm. Be nice to Jordan. Uh, he had a leadership role in developing the SEC whistleblower program, something I'm very interested in. I have so many applications in for awards and so little awards, <laughs> as in none. Uh, assigned assigned to many of the highest profile actions, such as those involving, I don't know, have you ever heard of Enron, Fannie Mae, UBS, Citigroup? And in 2011, established the nation's first whistle, whistleblower practice, exclusively focused on violations of federal security laws. Jordan's had some big wins since he started his practice. His SEC enforcement cases have resulted in monetary sanctions for relief, for harmed investors for more than $35 billion. He won the largest single-case SEC whistleblower award in, in history, $83 million for reporting misconduct at Merrill Lynch. God, who would have thought they would ever engage in misconduct? Seems so odd. I, I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. Which led to a $415 million settlement with the commission. Currently working on a $267 million SEC enforcement action against, oh, I don't know, maybe another investment bank. Let's go with J.P. Morgan. So, yeah, I'm sure he'll hit them all before it's done. <laughs> There's a trend here. There is a trend here. But, you know, with that with that big intro, because you know what, Jordan, you have a big resume. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Jordan, tell us, you know, 
we usually start out with our guests, like getting a little bit of background on our guests, where they came from, you know, how they kind of matriculated their way through the markets or whatever they're doing. Uh, what can you tell us about Jordan Thomas? Well, you know, my uh, my father was a judge uh, in terms of uh, fixer, and my mother was a, a nun uh, that became a school teacher. And uh, my early life was trying to figure out how those two worlds uh, could fit together. And uh, ultimately, uh, I began a legal career where uh, I tried to fight corruption and uh, I tried to try to make the world a little bit better place. I, I got to ask with, with, with that background, who, who was, who was the go-to parent for when something went wrong? Because there's some serious judgment there going on a, a judge and, and a, and a nun. Yeah. You, you, yeah, you actually have a kind of a civil court judgment there and then the higher power judgment. <laughs> well, it, you know, it, it wasn't like that. It, it, it would have been more complicated in the same household uh, my my father and mother divorced when I was three, separated even before that, and so uh, most of the time I lived with my mother, and then uh, the rest of the time I was uh, kind of visiting or staying with my father. So it was a kind of an alternating um, system of, of, of engagement with the powers that be. Right, I had that too. I just I I I, I got beat during the week at my father's and beat on the weekend at my mother's. So it was. <laughs> And I earned every one of them. So there you go. I have no defense. So you you were a judge advocate in the military, uh, and you know uh, were how long were you in the military? Well, a total of twenty one years. I was on active duty for three years, um, uh, or yeah, three years, and then the rest was uh, as a reservist. Um, kind of my out of law school, I knew I wanted uh, to try cases, and uh, uh, I focused on developing my craft and um, trying to do do good. And uh, I kind of progressed from the Navy JAG Corps uh, to the Department of Justice, then to the SEC. And then ultimately, uh, I had an opportunity to develop the SEC whistleblower program. And uh, once I had kind of helped to birth that program, I realized that uh, this was a rare opportunity to kind of combine all of my experiences to date uh, and also to be a pioneer in an area of law. Uh, I suspect it's not unlike um, kind of the opportunity that presented itself when you began uh, doing uh, short work and researching frauds and investing in companies uh, based upon uh, those sort of uh, things. That wasn't, you, you did it before it was cool. And uh, so. Um, well, let me tell you something. It's still not cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, public enemy number one. Yeah, right. There's you haven't lived until you've seen a Chiron with your face on it that uh, asked the question: Is Dan David public enemy number one? Um, like you know, I mean, shit, man. I have parents, right? I mean, like you know, cut it out. Uh, it, and and for me, I mean, I think it was very very different than you. You seem to be. Uh, a person who's who planned things out and and maybe made some changes along the way, uh, but you you seem to have a plan, stuck to it, and and went through a career that made logical sense. For me, I fell into it because I just got sick of being lied to and lost so much money in two thousand and eight by listening to investment bank analysts and and others that you would think are looking out for your best interests on Wall Street. Uh, turns out that's not true. 
Um, so yeah, it's been a slog ever since. And I'll, I'll tell you, I still have an outlook of positivity toward companies. I want them to do well. I know that might sound weird for what I do for a living, but it's kind of the American dream, right? Like you bet on success. You don't bet against success. Uh, unfortunately, there's got to be two sides to that market, right? There's got to be price discovery. And in some cases along the way, you find fraud, quite a bit of it, as a matter of fact. And you found that in your job. I mean, at the DOJ, you prosecuted fraud. Uh, you prosecuted individuals. I mean, what can you tell us about that? Do you have any memorable cases that you can discuss? Were you, were you at the DOJ for Enron or were you at the SEC at that point? I was at the SEC. Uh, at DOJ, I worked in the national court section, uh, and we worked on uh, cases relating to the saving loan crisis. Oh. I actually defended the government uh, because some of the people who had taken over the, the uh, financial institutions were suing the government, saying that the government didn't uh, basically honor their commitments to these financial institutions. Uh, only after Enron did I kind of think that the action was at the SEC and left DOJ, went to the SEC, and then um, uh, worked there. Uh, I will say that um, I did work on the, the Enron group of cases, but I did it at the end of the journey. Uh -huh. Yeah, I dealt with lawyers, the auditors, and uh, in a limited way. I don't want to overstate my role in Enron. Those folks that uh, spent like, I don't know, five years working on that case. Yeah. Um, uh, I wasn't one of them. I did, I did the last year or so of, of the journey. Yeah, it seems like, oh, geez, Enron in and of itself changed so much and there's such a rippling effect that people don't even realize from Enron. And I'm not talking about like Sarbanes-Oxley, which, you know, I'm not sure how effective it is today. I know that when it did come out that our CFO and our comptroller and everybody else were just like, whoa, this is serious. I mean, I've got to put my name on everything now. And, and they thought it was a big deal because people from Enron got prosecuted. And, I, you know, I'd like to ask you, Jordan, and whether this is on the topic of whistleblower programs or not, but why is it that nobody gets prosecuted anymore? Because it, it occurs to me, and I've said many times, the J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, whoever, companies cannot commit fraud. It's not possible. People at companies commit fraud. But when these companies offer to pay $250 million in a fine— I think what they're saying to the SEC, Division of Enforcement, and everywhere else is, this is what we'll spend to fight you if you want to put somebody in jail or twice as much. And in many cases, it's bigger than the entire budget. Uh, and they seem a little outmanned and outgunned. But the question is, why isn't anybody prosecuted anymore for fraud? I mean, unless you're poor or middle class, which is increasingly becoming the same thing. I definitely think that Sarbanes-Oxley and Enron dramatically changed the landscape. I think the Sarbanes-Oxley for the better. Uh, I think that what we, uh, the, the certifications and other uh, things in Sarbanes-Oxley improved the environment. Uh, they weren't perfect. There were holes and areas that need, needed to be fixed and some were fixed in Dodd-Frank later. Uh -huh. I think Enron, you know, I forget the book, but there's, it, it, the book goes, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Enron is that it was the best of times. It was, it led to some of the worst times. Yeah. Because 
while I didn't work on Enron the whole time, I was close enough to people uh, to see the wonderful work that was being done, the individual prosecutions that were made, mm-hmm. the complex cases that were made under difficult circumstances. Uh, and I think that that reflected some of the very best of our government, law enforcement, and regulatory agency work. But I think one of the consequences of that was they took out a company yep. and they, that actually had some legitimate business. It took out a well-regarded accounting firm that lost its way. Right, and Arthur Anderson. And, and the consequences of that were so significant in the minds of many that while it's not an absolute, it, it is the rule of thumb that companies don't get charged anymore by the criminal authorities unless they're like straight up frauds. Um, so going concerns tend not to have kind of the criminal DOJ enforcement. I think that Enron represented one of the very best in the sense of uh, they did a lot of charging of individuals, both at the DOJ level and the SEC level. And I don't think that government authorities' trial capability and motivation is as strong as it was then. And my wish is that my former DOJ and SEC colleagues had more resources and were more willing to try more cases. Yeah, it seems like there was a spat there for a while. You had WorldCom and Tyco and... You know, some people really got rung up in those companies and and then it's just ended. And I, you know, I don't know from the deal. I mean, it seems like when you pay these fines for two hundred and fifty million dollars or billion. Yeah, or billion. Yeah. Um, that there's this deal made with the SEC of, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to accept responsibility. I'll just pay this fine. And then there's maybe a tacit understanding that the DOJ won't come behind and prosecute because, of course, the the SEC can't arrest people, right? It's a civil authority. Uh, The DOJ would have to come in behind them and and do that kind of criminal prosecution. And it seems like as a part of paying these fines that the DOJ is kind of taken off the table. You know, there's a number of things to kind of talk through there. Inherently, the SEC and other regulators are, are limited. Their primary uh, kind of enforcement tool is money, making people pay for sanction. Right. Um, and that's what they do. Right. Um, the, 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 cha- kind of the challenge with that is who pays? And what happens is that- Shareholders. Um, shareholders and insurance companies. Yeah. And so, well, and shareholders of insurance companies. I mean, like shareholders. Period. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose that's true. And so, the, the the deterrence, the deterrent impact is less than it could be if that were different. Charging individuals uh, is both at the civil level and criminal level is as good as it gets. One of the challenges that I see, at least in the regulatory space, is the monetary sanctions for individuals tend to be relatively low. Yeah. And yeah. so even when they charge individuals, and, and law enforcement and regulatory authorities are trying harder to do that, this, the monetary sanctions aren't significant. Um, and that was true when I was on the Enron case. The, the auditors and lawyers didn't pay a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, they were disbarred and other things, and but... Um, the monetary sanctions are limited. I think there, 
in my mind, the, there's a pre-Dodd-Frank world and a post-Dodd-Frank world. Before Dodd-Frank, law enforcement authorities didn't have actual actionable intelligence to bring enforcement actions. And that may be slightly an overstatement, but the point is they were building cases circumstantially from the ground up, and the evidence tends to run out before you get to the top. After Dodd-Frank, uh, the SEC whistleblower program, the CFTC whistleblower programs, some additional employment protections gave people the ability to report anonymously, incentivize them with monetary awards, greater employment protections, and all of a sudden, you started having people who were fingering the most senior people in organizations. And that was a game changer. And I yep. think the world would be different today if we had another financial crisis. You mean when? Oh, and I'll give you one specific example. Um, after, or two actually, after when COVID hit, the, we saw a dramatic increase in uh, whistleblower reports. And the SEC kind of noted how valuable those tips were. The GameStop situation, you know, our phones were ringing off the hook with people who wanted to be SEC whistleblowers. And we've taken two cases that are related to the GameStop universe. I can't speak to the specifics. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing, you know, serious interest of law enforcement and regulatory authorities in my client's cases. And that didn't exist after the financial crisis. I mean, literally, we're talking, you know, a week or two from this breaking, and we have two cases and that are significant and are going to be of great help to law enforcement. Well, yeah, I, and I mean, look, I mean, GameStop in and of itself is is taking on a life of its own in, in many different ways. I mean, it's such a, a tragedy and a failure of, of fiduciary and moral responsibility on many corporate levels. Uh, and to me, it is the angst of the retail investor who are largely – some of the same people who were just tired and fed up this summer that were lashing out, you know, maybe even some that were in the Capitol, that kind of anger. Oddly enough, they're all in the same room now, <laughs> virtually. They, you know, whether whether you call it Antifa or you call it Proud Boys or any of these, you know, whatever fringe movements, they've all gotten together and and said, we're going to use our monetary power. Reddit uh, army. Yeah, and, and call it an army. And then when you have Elizabeth Warren like showing up on every program saying somebody's going to have to burn, well, I think somebody's going to burn. I mean, right? Uh, I didn't appreciate, quite frankly, and I went on television and said as much, that she kept railing against the SEC, which I'm just like, how does that make any sense at all? Like, you've been in the Senate for all these years, and this goes for any Republican as well, senator or, or member of Congress. You set the budget for the SEC— you know what they have as far as tools. I mean, you look at uh, the division of uh, of trading, right? And they have what four hundred employees there for the SEC. I mean, how many how many employees are in the division of enforcement? Uh, a thousand. A thousand employees against yeah. twenty trillion dollars being traded a year. I mean, and and she's blaming them. Uh, this is this is inaction by all of us as a people. Like we all have to take responsibility. Yeah. I I think I have a little bit more sympathetic view of uh, Senator Warren. I, I think that, you know, I don't, I didn't follow all of her comments, so perhaps I'm missing the most inflammatory ones. But, you know, I think that it's a fair statement to say that the volatility experienced in the market, fair in the sense of a reasonable person could have the view, not necessarily my view, is that uh, that the volatility in the market was unhealthy, 
in that uh, there should be regulatory changes to, to decrease the volatility and opportunity for abuse in the market. So there's a regulatory question. Should we make changes to that? And I think that reasonable, it's reasonable for the, the government to think about ways to do that. I think that when it talks about, we've seen this conflagration of problems uh, around the GameStop scenario and that we need to get to the bottom of it, uh, which she certainly has pushed for. I think that's, that's also a reasonable question. How did we get to this conflagration? Um, and then the idea that people who acted inappropriately should pay also I think is reasonable. I think that the idea that there's pressure to do something, it is certainly true and some would argue uh, inappropriate, but I think that that exists in every scandal. Every corporate scandal, the moment it happens, yeah. the, the, the powerful and the public sit there and say, do something. This is really bad. Right. And and then the, the SEC and DOJ are faced with the question of what should we do? Can we do? What is appropriate to do? And that part, I think, the SEC, uh, I feel pretty good about, that they're not going to go crazy and start charging a bunch of random individuals who, who posted something on Reddit. I don't think they're going to they're going to charge any of them and nor should they. I, I agree. I think there's a lot of tough issues here because people do have the right to protest. Right. And, and if you frame the trading in the context, context of a protest, I think it's a lot harder. Well, what you do with your money is a freedom of expression, which is part of freedom of speech. No, it's the, it's the same with political contributions. Um, so yep. I think that, um, but I do think there will be enormous pressure on law enforcement regulatory authorities to look closely. And inherently, when looking closely, I do think they're going to find people who went too far, who did the wrong thing. And, but I think those people, those, the kinds of issues they're going to find are more likely because they're just taking a closer look at a space uh -huh. than they are about, you know, the Reddit army. Yeah. I mean, look, look, if they find, and, and I know they're specifically looking for this, that there are some major funds behind part of this Reddit army that are posing anonymously and, you know, one fund loses what, $13 billion or, you know, their share of it. And then they think the Reddit army made all that money. No, uh, there were other <laughs> funds who made, who, who made up the vast majority of those profits. And then that the whole arrangement between Robin Hood and Citadel is always been wonky. Uh, I've never liked it. Um, so I'm glad that they are looking into that, but it, it's, as you said, I mean, they, a, they could have looked into it sooner. It's always been kind of an issue out there to be begging to be looked at, but you look at like Valiant Pharmaceuticals, um, when that blow up happened, like, okay, let's march everybody in here from the pharmaceutical industry, including Mylan and the EpiPen. And, and then they ring up Martin Shrikeli, who's just a total douche, but it had nothing to do with price gouging what they got him for. It was for his fraud in a former company. Really nothing changed in the drug companies, right? I mean, like everybody came and testified and, you know, there's there's nothing happening with uh, lowering the price of drugs so much. They still get marked up. They're still wildly expensive. And I kind of feel like this is going to be the same thing. I hope it's not. I You know, I hope they they make it safer for people, especially retail. 
But it's like you said. I mean, when there's that moment, they're going to bring everybody in and, and make a production out of it. Yeah, I, there's there's no question uh, that, that it will draw more attention and, and effort. I think that in cases like this, we address problems through regulation uh, and we focus more on certain areas of, of enforcement that we may not have focused enough on. And then we correct because the way government works is we tend to over solve problems right. and we create different problems. Right. And then you go, oops, yep. this is causing a different problem. We need to make some adjustments. Right. So Bob Frank was a, a response to meet some of the inadequacies in Sarbanes-Oxley. And Sarbanes-Oxley was a reaction to some of the issues that came out kind of at that time in the Enron and the WorldComs of, of the time. And then you see uh, Dodd-Frank, people having concerns about aspects of Dodd-Frank. And I think that they're going to do stuff. Some that's going to be better. I'd like to think net better, but still there's going to be adjustments. Yeah. Yeah. Dodd-Frank is also born of like the repeal of Glass-Steagall, right? Like, you know, I mean, and it's funny because that really kept things separate and kind of on an even keel with the investment banks and regular banking. And, and when the crisis hit, nobody, nobody ever even like thought about, Hey, let's reinstitute Glass-Steagall because like the unwinding would be immense. As we talked about banks too big to fail that are now bigger, most are bigger than countries. So uh, what are you going to do? And I mean, you look at it now, it makes no sense to have your money in the bank, like large sums of money, and for a 90-year-old or an 80-year-old, why do they have to have all their money in the market now? But they do because they can't gain any interest in the bank. So even if they got 1% interest, which they don't get, 2% cost of li living, they're losing 1%. And I guarantee you that if you walk into any bank, Wells Fargo, wherever, and put $50,000 in a savings account, five people are going to tackle you on the way out the door trying to sell you a wealth management product. And here we are. So when any of the senators, whether it be Warren or anybody else, she just happened to be the most vocal out there. Good for her. I happen to disagree. But when you throw $7 trillion of liquidity at a market within 12 months, what do you think is going to happen? Everything always matriculates back to the market when it comes to money now because there's no place else to put your money. There's no question that I don't think we're at a point anymore where we can pretend that the market can be fundamentally structured differently. Mm -hmm. I think that um, kind of where I land on this is that it's predictable that in any industry that has so much money and, and the incentives are structured the way they are, that bad things are going to happen. And it doesn't mean that everyone in Wall Street uh, is corrupt, but the few that are corrupt have the ability to hurt a lot of people. And so for me, um, where I think the system doesn't make a ton of sense is we know it's kind of like having children and not having supervision. It's predictable <laughs> they're going to get into trouble. Yeah. And when you have children in a candy store uh -huh. uh, unsupervised, it's predictable they're going to to get into big trouble. Right. And so we need to provide the regulators with more resources right. so they can have more cops on the street so that we can be better protected. And right now, what we have is flat uh, budgets 
for our financial watchdogs, but we have increasing responsibilities in a growing and dynamic marketplace. And it's predictable uh, that they're gonna miss a lot and not be able to respond effectively often. And what we see as a natural result of that is we see regulators focusing on numbers, how many enforcement actions, because other people are asking about that. And they focus on how many exams they've done. But the, but the reality is with the decreasing resources and expanding kind of uh, mandate, that means that their, their inspections have to be less detailed and less um, uh, kind of far reaching. Their investigations have to be more targeted. They have to, they tend, they might lead to sh more shorter term cases that because you can get those in faster and get better numbers. All of those things, it, and it also suggests that you're going to settle more often than you're going to litigate because you can't afford to waste time and resources on long running litigations when you could hit 10 or 15 cases with those same bodies uh -huh. uh, settling for cheaper. Right. So we, we need to break the status quo, in my mind, on enforcement because without a change, we're going to keep going for a, a higher percentage of smaller, smaller time cases and we're gonna be seeking less. And I think we actually need to go the other way. I think we need to kind of have the swagger that our Enron prosecutors had back yep. in the day where um, they, they were going uh, to invest in prosecuting those cases. They were gonna charge individuals and they were gonna put them away. And they scared people and they yep. scared companies. And I want uh, law enforcement and regulators to scare the bad guys more. If you were still wearing your enforcement hat, uh, um, hypothetically, of course, um, who would you who would you eyeball on the GameStop? Would it be a high profile individual? Would it be um, one of the financial firms? I mean, what's what would you look at if you were if you were gunning for them with the swagger? I, I can't comment on that because I have two cases that I filed oh. on that. Yeah. Um, so I have, I have used, Do you remember, I can, remember when he said that douche, but, but what I can, but what I can say is in a situation like this, I have great confidence that there's going to be a whole lot of very smart people looking at all, all different aspects of the GameStop story, not just GameStop, but the, all the surrounding players. But it's, but it is, as you said, so the intense amount of focus and time that they take for this is going to take away from 10 or 15 other cases because there's only so many bodies, so many hands. So, Jordan, how do we solve it? Like, you know, how do we get the Division of Enforcement to be 2,000 people? Because as it is, it's 25% of the SEC now, right? Because there's like 4,000 people there. Right. Um, so yeah. how, do we get that, how do we get that money to them and, and the kind of give the swagger back to them? Because, you know, you said not, you know, not everybody on Wall Street's a bad guy. I mean, I totally agree. I mean, it just happens to be everybody I've ever met uh, is. <laughs> uh, but, you know, about getting their their swagger back and starting to prosecute again, that is, that's a function of a mandate from government, right? That that they've really kind of backed them off from doing that. I don't think the SEC. I never met anybody at the SEC, and I've had several meetings there that didn't really want to do the right thing and and get to the bottom of it and prosecute. I mean, people would say to me, you know, when you go to the SEC with a video of, you know, a, a factory that's obviously lying about what they're doing, 
that must be a great day for the SEC. And I say, no, it's not a great day. It's a good day. A great day is when I've done that and I screwed up too, and they have two cases for one. Because there's nobody on the other side of the table that's beyond suspicion, and that's the way it should be, right? They're looking into all sides of it, but they only have so much time. And when you when you talk about how, how the, there was fear after Enron, do you know how many large corporations fear the SEC today? Let me give you a hint. None. Like, none. They're just going to pay a fine that shareholders pay. I fear them. Uh, I think that, you know, most investors should. But when you get to be that big corporation and you say, okay, well, you know what, I'm shielded. And it's a double screw you, Jordan, because not only are they hurting their investors by having to pay these huge fines or, or committing misconduct and fraud and tainting the name of the company they're invested on, but then they, the shareholders themselves pay the fine. You know, there's a number of things that you've said that I think are interesting for us to talk about. One of the questions was kind of, if you were the kind of the head of the SEC, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, what I would establish is I would double the resources for the trial trial component. Mm-hmm. And I would say at the beginning of my tenure that we're going to try more cases. We're going to lose some, we're going to win some, but we're not backing now. You're hired. <laughs> yeah. Because to me, the best, you get better settlements, you get more settlements when you have a credible trial threat. Mm-hmm. And, the, and right now, the SEC doesn't have the manpower mm-hmm. um, uh, and mandate, I think, to uh, try as many cases as I think they should. If I were to go back in history and fix one thing that I think would have changed the way the SEC ran and could happen today, is Mary Shapiro, the former chairman of the SEC. Um, She came in right after the financial crisis. She was responsible for conceiving the SEC whistleblower program. And she had just come from leading FINRA. FINRA is uh, a good organization, but it's not the strongest law enforcement organization, and partly because the SEC is is the heavy in that area. But one thing that Mary Shapiro saw uh, that she really didn't like is that at FINRA, they get to fund their operations from the fines that come uh, basically, not from the the fines, but from their members. Mm -hmm. So basically, they're self-funding. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they have a lot of money. So when the SEC needs great technical stuff on insider trading, FINRA has better stuff than this, right? Or at least did. Um, and so when she went to Congress, she was trying to get the SEC to be self-funded. And uh, Congress resisted. And because of that, the SEC is more influenced by politics, and they can't plus up their staffing in a way that would be uh, kind of meaningful. So. I, if it, I wish that that Congress had gone along with Commissioner Chairman Shapiro's um, suggestion, and I think getting that today would immediately allow the SEC to to right size and pay the people that they need to bring in. So those are some things that I would do. I think I left one of your questions on the table. So uh, that's okay. I, I meander. It happens. I'll probably yeah. repeat myself. I do that too. Uh, you know, talk to me about the relationship between the SEC and Congress, because before I started going to Washington and lobbying Congress, very, very difficult process in, in, in their, you know, just 
no other word for it, their ignorance of how the markets work between here and China, right? That they, mm-hmm. most members had no idea it wasn't illegal for a Chinese citizen to steal from an American citizen in China. And I thought, well, you know, the SEC is going to educate them and, and they've got this great relationship because they work together. And they watched some, some testimony where the SEC, three or four or five members of the SEC come in and give an update to Congress. And man, it just looks like, it looks like the five of them drew a short straw <laughs> and they walk in there with their shoulders slump and then it's like, here it comes. And they just get their asses handed to them. I mean, depending on the partisanship, it's a lot of finger pointing rather than anyone on any of those panels and a member of Congress ever saying to somebody testifying to the SEC, what more can we do to help you? I've never heard anybody say that to them. What, do you, what else do you need? So it seems like the relationship isn't good from what I can see. What was your experience? You know, I have no doubt that uh, there's more work that can be done there. I had a role in kind of briefing Congress on the proposed whistleblower program, which of course was passed, so it was good. Yeah. And uh, I was asked to testify before the House Financial Services Committee relating to a change in the statute of limitations for, for SEC enforcement cases, uh, which was also passed in the recent Defense Operation Authorization Act. So I, I think that the legislative affairs person is someone, the head of legislative affairs is a job that's picked by the chairman. So I think it changes with administration, mm-hmm. uh, who's running point on that. Mm-hmm. And then you have a the dynamic changes with who's in charge of the, re- the relevant committees that oversee the SEC. Um, my What I suspect is that the SEC has a wish list of things that's important to them and they prioritize them. And then uh, they are less focused on other stuff. So I don't think the SEC is regularly briefing them on all kinds of things. I think they're going in saying, here's three things that we really, really would like. Can you help us with these? Right. There's a whole bunch of other things right. that uh, Congress either doesn't understand or is not smart on. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I, I, I saw that for myself personally. Back to you yourself in, in conceiving the whistleblower program, mm-hmm. it seemed like the, the SEC – you know, there's that there's that incentive kind of mindset. There's the carrot and the stick. And the SEC always had the stick. And you and others decided that some carrots would be good. And I guess this is the whistleblower program in and of itself. And as many of it, you know, all the complaints I have about it, hey, it's better than nothing and people are getting paid. I don't think I mean, I, I don't know what the percentage is. It's got to be like 0.003% actually for a, every tip somebody gets paid. You know, it's a third of 1%. Uh, it is, 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 uh, How like, close uh, was I? So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the odds are better than, better than the lottery. Um, so, but, uh, uh, you know, I would tell you that your odds go up if you have good counsel, but I'm biased on that. So, um, but, no, but that's, I, I believe that's, that is absolutely true. By the way, anybody listening, you think you can save a few bucks or whatever doing this on your own? That is a mistake. I, I could assure you that's a mistake. You got to have counsel following up for you, understanding that not only are you filling out for you know the whistleblower uh, program, but then when an award is posted, you've got to go back in and 
and say that you're eligible for the award, there's a lot of hurdles to get over that good counsel can help you with. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just really want to focus on that for people. Doing it on your own is a mistake. I, I certainly think that sophisticated counsel are helpful. One thing that I, I, I often tell people is, what's going to help you sleep better at night? Because to me, um, there are people who are quite smart, very sophisticated, can help the SEC, and they don't need help. But if things don't go the way you hope, whether the SEC investigates or doesn't investigate, whether you they, they bring a successful enforcement action and they don't pay you, or they don't pay you as much as you think, are you going to be at peace? And to me, this idea of being at peace determines whether people report, and it determines how they report. And people should spend more time on that. I think lots of whistleblowers focus on, am I right? Right. And uh, being right by itself is not enough. You have to think more. That's a very good point. Yeah. Being right is, is not enough. I, this is obviously a married man. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that, in that case, right is, is what my, my wise wife uh, uh, says. Yes. Right is whatever she says, yes. That's, that works out. That is exactly, <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, so the whistleblower program, I think, you know, overall is a success. I mean, people are getting paid, but... It does. It do, the rules kind of start to become a floating, moving target um, when things start to change. And I, I guess, am I getting this right? I'm finding that now, you know, you being a litigator for the SEC at one point, now you're going to get into litigation with the SEC, and you're suing the SEC. I got to tell you, it's something I never would have dreamed I would be in that situation, and it's something that no one likes suing family. But uh, one of the things that according to the attorney conduct rules is you have to zealously represent your clients. Yeah. And turns out I, I have 40 clients in the pipeline. And when the SEC changed their rules, they essentially moved the goalposts or potentially could move the goalposts of my clients. And I consulted outside independent counsel and ethics counsel and said, the way I see this, I have to do this. And they said, if you had one client that they changed the rules on, you would have had an ethical duty to do something. You have 40. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to do something. Yeah. So we filed and uh, we will litigate. In an ideal world, the new chairman will see, see uh, that this is an opportunity to fix something uh, and avoid litigation. But uh, I'm a big believer in you don't bluff. So we, no. are, uh, we, we are operating as if we're litigating to the end. And if there's a, there's a resolution that's short on uh, final uh, tri trial, that would be nice. But I, I don't, I, I'm not planning for that. Well, and you're a known quantity to the SEC. I don't think they think you're bluffing. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think they're bluffing. And we, and we hired a very, very well-known uh, boutique appellate firm to assist. And uh, they've successfully overturned agency rulings. So... Even if they didn't know me, they know them. So together, I think they'll take it seriously. And I, and I see this as maybe one of the problems that the SEC faces. When you said, look, if, you know, when I'm the head of the SEC, because I'm rooting for you, Jordan. Oh, I didn't say it when I'm the head. I yeah, have the best the, job in the world. I don't want no, any other no, job. I, no, I just if, put, I put words in your mouth. I just put words in your mouth. That's <laughs> 
Because yeah. next thing you're going to be seeing a news story, Jordan's yeah. uh, wants to be the head of the SEC. Oh, that, that would be the first time somebody's twisted what I said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you were saying like in, in an ideal world, you'd say, look, there's going to be twice as many enforcement actions. We're going to take people to trial. We're going to do all these things we really should be doing. But the SEC really has to worry about precedent, especially when they go to trial. You know, and, and, and the same thing, they're facing this with you now that you're suing them that, you know, your win could set precedent. And I think they fear that kind of thing. I mean, for God's sake, they couldn't fit Mark Cuban. I mean, the guy insider traded. I mean, like, I mean, really. I mean, he, he produced a movie I, I happen to, you know, make an appearance in. But that doesn't mean, like, when he gets on the phone with somebody that's an insider that says, I'm going to raise money and do a dilutive offering. And he's like, oh, shit, I wish you wouldn't have told me that because now I can't sell. And then he goes and sells. <laughs> And you couldn't get that conviction. I mean, that had to really frustrate people. So, and I don't know many people who would view this this way, but first of all, I know the team that worked on the Cuban case, yeah. and they're very talented attorneys. But more importantly, I think the Cuban case is exactly the kinds of cases I think the SSP should be bringing. Not because I think Mark Cuban is a very bad guy and right. he should go to jail. No. My point only is that the reason Mark Cuban was successful, put aside some of the legal tactical things, was it was a, it was a new area of law. It hadn't kind of, and so they were able to say that you may not like it, but it's it, it's it's okay for, for him to have done this. Um, and the SEC took a different position, saying. Even though it's gray, we think he was on the, the wrong side of the line. And, he, and they argued and were successful enough to, to say it was. But this is my point. I believe the SEC at its best is willing to fight, whether go. it's with the Enron bad guys or with Mark Cuban about the gray area in which he was trading. And if we at the SEC and other law enforcement are willing to try cases and lose, just because we think that what someone did was wrong and we were willing to do it more often than the next time we go and tell someone, settle or we're going to try a case, they will believe us. But, and so it's less about winning as it's about fighting. And I think that we benefit as investors in the public when we fight more. Because people ask me all the time, they say, do you, do you feel like it doesn't work because, you know, the, the SEC gets monetary sanctions, but it doesn't seem to bother Jamie Dimon and, you know, other people? And my answer is I sleep better at night when we're fighting the, the good fight. Mm -hmm. And right now, law enforcement and the regulatory authorities don't have the resources and the mandate to fight. And I want them to be able to fight. Amen. I mean, listen, I love the passion. I love what you're saying. but. We have to sit here and, and, and tell it like it is. As it stands today, no, they, they don't want to fight. And it's, it's a problem. Uh, and I, think, I, think it, I think that there are multiple factors, but they certainly don't have the resources to fight. Yeah. To fight. Because any, you take a, the Merrill Lynch case, a case that had like, it ultimately settled for $415 million. Yeah. If they litigated that, there would be a battalion of uh, of high end lawyers on the other side. They'd spend twice that to win. Well, they'd spend a lot, and and the point is, 
the trial unit at the SEC, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say maybe it's 20 to 40 attorneys at the home office. They have trial attorneys around the country, but like wow. you could literally have, you know, you could have five attorneys assigned to that case. You just took five of the 40 out, out of play on one case. And that's not talking about all the paralegals and experts and all the other things that you would need to fight that case. And that would be a multi-year fight. Right. And so until they have more resources and they have someone who says, guess what? Our standard is not uh, the notches on our belt of wins and losses. It's that we're fighting the good fight over and over again. Because right now, the SEC goes to Congress or Congress asks them for, tell me how many enforcement cases you brought. Right. Tell me how many individuals you've charged, trials you've had, and how many trials you've won. And so if you look at who gets tried, it tends to be the smaller players. Right. Um, that are going to lose. Yeah. Well, because those are kind of better odds and right. the bigger entities settle. Anyway, I'm, I'm repeating myself. I, I can't tell you. I've learned a few things in my, my career, and one is credible trial threat is critical to successful enforcement. And so the more you, the more trials you do, and the more you invest in that, the better your law enforcement program is. Yeah, that seems <laughs> very, very logical. Uh, you would think that people would sign up for that, but uh, well, but you have to have a long view. That's the trick. Yeah. Because well, how do you how do you have a long view, Jordan? Because like even with the DOJ and the SEC, it's every four to eight years, and boom. Everything changes uh, on a political view, right? So, eight, eight years it, it is having an eight-year window is meaningful. Um, you see real change uh, when you have leaders that go beyond four years, but it's a real challenge because if you're the chairman of, of, of the SEC, pick regardless of party. First of all, for the first two years of your tenure, at least, yeah, the cases you're bringing are up the, the other administration's cases. Yep. Uh, and you're, and so if day one you're setting priorities that you might get to see some of the, the results in the second two years of your tenure. Um, but Congress is going to, and the press is going to keep pinging you on number of enforcement actions and the monetary sanctions collected. And if your numbers somehow go lower, particularly if they go meaningfully lower, they're going to say this is because your party doesn't care. Or it's it's yep. or it's it's in, in cahoots yep. with the bad guys, right? And that's almost certainly not true in the enforcement space. If you want to talk about regulations, then I think party really matters. But my experience of the enforcement side is Republicans and Democrats both don't like bad fraudsters, and so the question then gets more complicated. But I, I think that they're kind of they've got a gun to their head, and so to me the 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 only way that someone is able to kind of get beyond that is they sit there and say from day one, the numbers are going to be different. Yeah. And here's why I'm, I'm building an elite trial unit. That's going to kind of go all around the country and support all the other trial units. I'm going to put more money behind these folks. We're going to try more cases and we're going to lose some, but at the end of the day, we're going to fight the good fight. And yes, we're going to still do insider trading and all these other cases, but we need to try more cases. Yeah, and we're going to different kinds of cases. I think you're going to see different results, not only in the trials but in the settlements. Congress has got to stop asking the same questions and and having the same goals for the SEC. Well, they don't get it. You, you, you 
I've no, seen no, they do get it. They do get it. They, I mean, like it's about getting reelected. Well, well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, they, they don't get. The, the, I, I don't think the, but I, I, I don't think the, I don't think the press helps. I think that. Oh, no. I think that I think the press is very focused on these numbers, but one of the things that you said earlier, I, I did want to kind of come back to. Yeah. It is there. There's a, a school of, of economics called the Law and Policy School uh-huh. of Economics, and. Um, you know, it's a very rational sort of way of looking at actions in the business world. It's, you know, if you do this, what are the pros and cons, essentially, of this action? And when it comes to kind of risk of law enforcement or regulatory action, they're, they're very rational. They say, maybe you should emit more smog if, if it's unlikely to be prosecuted. And if it is prosecuted, the, the monetary sanctions are uh, small, so you can. It's it's better business choice to do that, and maybe like some, maybe like Walmart in Mexico. That, that's exactly where I was going. To me, the Walmart in Mexico case is like the perfect example of what we have, what Congress, the regulators, the law enforcement authorities have to solve. Walmart was not in Mexico. Right. They went into Mexico and paid bribes everywhere okay as one does and and then they got caught right and then they paid a fine they paid extraordinarily high law enforcement uh, uh, legal fees but at the end of the day if you look at what do they have what they what they spent compared to what they still have the number one position in mexico every company in the country if you said if you pay four billion would you and get the number one position in mexico would you pay it They'd say, absolutely. I'd pay t- five times that to be the number one retailer in Mexico if I wasn't in Mexico. Right. And, you know, how will we solve that problem of looking at making it so that it's not okay, uh, that it's not, that the deal's not worth it? I think some would say the answer is individual prosecution. Jail. Basically, I, I, I'm some. Yeah. I, they, they would say the answer is kind of Enron like charge everybody. And some might even say to go further, we need to charge the company, take away some of their kind of like Commissioner Stein at the SEC was a big proponent of they, they recidivists shouldn't get waivers mm-hmm. in cert, certain types of waivers and everybody gets them. Well, so like Deutsche Bank, you know, they're, they're, they are a repeat offender and uh, they're still getting a waiver like they're a good company. HSBC. I mean, like literally, literally insert bank name here. You'd be a recidivist. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> obviously there are their, their lawyers have some arguments, but the point is comes back to Walmart. It comes back to this concept of are, are, are the consequences of wrongdoing significant enough that a cold-hearted look at the pros and cons of doing the action would deter people from doing something. And right now, I think that politically, the the polite way of saying it is, we need to do a lot more. That is polite. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, you know, yes. Uh, And, and of course, now Walmart has stores all over Mexico, so FC... PA violation, no harm, no foul. Let's move on. Um, is is their attitude? You know, tell me what the commission. You were there during some of the this run up in China where the fraud just became 
really pervasive and well known in 2010, 11, and 12, maybe. Take me through it. Were, what was the, what were people at the SEC saying when this was happening? Like, you know, daily, there's a there's a company being being accused of fraud and and credibly uh, from China. And then there's all this information coming out that people didn't know that like you can steal from an American citizen uh, if you live in China and it's it's fine. Like our auditors that use the name Deloitte, Pricewaterhouse, KPMG, whatever the big four, because there's no longer the big five after Enron, are just charters. They're not they're not the A team from the United States. They're the China version over there and they rent the name and and auditors will tell you flat out that it's not their job to catch fraud. That's not what they do. I mean, if they do happen to catch it along the audit, fine. What were you guys thinking? So, you know, I did. I, I only touched a few of, of the China cases. What I know is this was another situation um, where there's a moment in time where people come to realize that there's a much bigger problem. Mm-hmm. And then there's a massive movement to start kind of addressing it. The SEC took it seriously. There, I remember an assistant director by the name of Kara Brockmeyer, who ultimately became an associate director and head of the SCPA unit. Now she's in private practice. Uh, she, she, and I guess Tony Sheehan, another associate director, formed a task force, a China task force. Uh-huh. And they started combining resources, looking at these cases in a coordinated way. And they started bringing cases. So I think they were kind of coming coming late to the party, but they came with lots of bodies and tried to 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 do the best they could. Um, I think that any sort of fair assessment of that period was they were responding to uh, reports by folks like yourself and press reports of problems mm-hmm. to to bring to to initiate many of their investigations. And over time, and I left in 2011. So um, my knowledge kind of stopped in August of 2000, July of 2011, uh, of firsthand knowledge at the SEC is that things got a lot worse for the SEC's ability to build cases with China. Like today, when I'm regularly approached by people who have uh, China frauds, only a handful I've been able to take because the ability to investigate for the SEC is so limited, the ability to collect is so limited, and the kind of the barriers to getting evidence out of China are so high. I have one client who's, you know, had people smuggling documents out of China, you know, at the risk of being imprisoned. I mean, it's like right out of a novel. Uh, that's, it, that's a Tuesday for us. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Yeah. We, we've no, we I, just I, I get it. recently I mean, done it. And, and that's, look, any document you're taking out of China, you're smuggling out of China. <laughs> so that's how that's viewed by them on any given day. It's a very dangerous environment. And the yeah. SEC is not welcome there. It's not like they can compel people from China to really do anything. Uh, they can ask, but they can't go on the ground in China. So, you know, I, I get it. I get it. This, this is a, a massive problem. Uh, I, I know that some of the senators are trying and Congress has passed some laws that bipartisan, which is great. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're trying to do something, but it's a it's a it's a real quagmire because to enforce means to uh, for current shareholders of these companies, uh, it, it can cause real challenges. Make no mistake, I think there's no possible justification for letting people trade on our markets if they don't play by the same rules as everybody else. 
Yeah. Um, if you don't want to play by the rules, just go to another market. Yeah. You would, you would think that's how it works. Uh, and, and, and you say like, you know, with a new SEC chairman coming in, we don't know a lot about him. Um, I wish him well, you know, he'll be, he'll be presiding over cases that his predecessor had for the next two years. <laughs> One of them being Alibaba. <laughs> uh, and I don't have anything really bad to say about Jay Clayton. It happens that he was part of the team that brought Alibaba public. And then we've had this case going on for the last three or four years with, you know, no real status update. I mean, what do you think happens there? Do you have an opinion? Yeah, I, I can't comment on that one. Oh, the plot thickens. <laughs> the plot thickens. Cool. Your non-opinion is an opinion, just so you know, Jordan. <laughs> well, look, I, you know, I, I hope that there's something that can be done and there's there's more transparency coming out of this. I don't see it happening anytime soon, but it's a very important thing for our investors. You know, when you talk about a China listed stock committing fraud, it's not it's not GameStop. And and GameStop, maybe you could speak on this for a second. I mean, really that's part of part of the issue is the large amount of passive investment that doesn't trade, that takes up so much of the float in a company. Like you look at GameStop, oh right, you can't really talk about them, but in general they get 70 million shares trading, right? 20 million of them are locked up with insiders are not going to trade. And then you look at like 46 million more are with passive investments that aren't going to trade. So you got 4 million shares is all you need to push around this company and the stock price. And getting away from GameStop, I've done a screen and there's like 500 of these companies out there in the same situation, just ripe for the same kind of thing. Um, how do you feel about passive investment and so much of it control? I mean, it really is the market, in my opinion, at this point. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I don't I haven't spent enough time thinking about it uh, to give thoughtful kind of thoughts on it. It definitely falls within the, the, the regulatory space of what the rules of the, the game should be. I think that they're going to be reevaluated, and I think that the nature of our our capitalist system is we take advantage of the rules as they are, and the opportunities that arise from those rules. I think somebody and, said something like that once, at the beginning yeah, of a movie. <laughs> could be, yeah. could be, and I think that we're seeing that. And I think that if Elizabeth Warren has her way, and people who are aligned with uh, Senator Warren, they are going to try to narrow the impact of that 4 million on the market. My side, my focus is throughout my career has been on the enforcement side of the equation, mm -hmm. not on the regulatory side. I've accepted the rules as whatever they are and focused on, are we policing, enforcing the market rule? I have little doubt that at least in the GameStop situation, the cops are going to look really hard at trying to enforce the existing rules in that, in that problem. Oh, yeah, we're going to get a show out of this. There, there's going to be some testimony, which I love. I love seeing that stuff. So tell us, Jordan, what else would you kind of advice would you have for the investor, increasingly the retail investor out there? And, and how, do people, how do people kind of become a client of yours if they have a whistleblower award to give? I mean, you know, this is your opportunity to tell people about you and your business and how it could uh, improve their lives. Sure. You know, I... The investors I 
I think that it's very hard to compete with sophisticated investors and big players in the marketplace. And so uh, I think that very few are successful in doing that part-time from the side of their desk and at home. And for, for those, I would kind of advise kind of that they recognize limitations and get help. And for those who can't get help, I think index funds are a very good solution for them. But as far as uh, the passive uh, investments, <laughs> yeah, it, apparently, it, you know, I mean, by it, return, it, yes, they are. Yeah, but by return, uh, the I think that the uh, as far as kind of whistleblowers and kind of what what they should be focused on, I think that they should start by finding out is in fact there is a problem, kind of assessing is there a securities violation or some other type of violation if it's not a, a securities problem. Then I think they should look at whether they have the evidence to prove that problem. Mm -hmm. And most investors, most whistleblowers benefit by consulting someone. Even if it's not to consult with someone to file on their behalf, just to confirm their understanding of the problem and the, the evidence they have and thinking about the best way to report. Because the worst possible scenario is someone reports a problem in good faith. It's not a problem. And then they they have a bus rolled over, or they identify a problem. It's a problem. They have evidence about the problem, and a bus is rolled over. So we, more likely, the best, the best scenario is to see a problem, report a problem, and live to tell the story. And 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 that is rare. Uh, with the ability to report anonymously under the SEC whistleblower program and CFTC programs, it does happen. And and to my surprise, some clients don't want to stay at the organizations even after they get large awards. So. It's an odd thing, but you can do it if 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 you have the if you report anonymously. Well, you know, one of my final questions, and you know, I pure candor here. Mm -hmm. Overall, what is the SEC view in general on short sellers, especially <laughs> activist short sellers, who, like me, will come out and say, "This is my opinion," and you know, from my perspective. The company speaks to us all the time through a K, 8K, 10K press releases. They give out their opinion. We give out our opinion. And I've had a bit of a mixed reaction, some very, very positive, some not so positive. It seems like, you know, some consider it of help and some consider it of hindrance. Is that fair? I think that the view at the top of the SEC changes with administration. Um, yeah. I think that. Overall, uh, I think the enforcement division views what short sellers provide as kind of like a news report, something that's worthy of looking into perhaps a little more closely. So short sellers have a bias. Right, um, which and, should be stated and, up front. Correct. And, and, the, and the commission is always concerned about people who have a bias when they come to them. And remember, the SEC gets 30,000 tips, complaints, and referrals a year. They can only actively investigate two to 3,000. Right. And those take several years to investigate. So you'd like have 1,000 openings and 30,000 tips coming in. And what, you have one choice with someone who doesn't have a bias. And you have someone who has a monster bias. And, the, and some short sellers, and I know maybe hard to imagine, are unpredictable. No. And, no. Uh, and, and so if you were to even bother to have a meeting with them, they're going to go on national TV and say, the SEC met with me and said this was a monster problem. And all of a sudden, oh, someone used their process 
to short a stock and hurt, and hurt investors. And so there's a real tension between wanting to know from the whistleblower, but at the same time, not wanting to either invest time in a case where it may not be legit and the person's biased, or it's legit or potentially legit, but the, the process is being used against uh, inappropriate. And so how, was, how the SEC in that, in enforcement people solve that problem is staffer by staffer. Some people say, that seems really dangerous. I'm going to go with the simple one where I don't deal with someone other bias, or I'm going to take information from these people, but I'm never going to talk to them again. And then some are going to say, this is just like any other whistleblower who also has a financial interest, perhaps not as direct and manipulable uh, interest. And we're going to work with them because I want to get bad guys. And these guys seem pretty good at identifying. And I represent short sellers. Uh, I represent lots of other types. But even I, who have uh, friendships and relationships with uh, short sellers, I look at their cases a lot harder because yeah. I know that they're going to get a, it's going to be harder to, to get the SEC to engage on them. Well, that's the point then. I mean, really, there's, you end with that. Like the, the reality is when you're an activist short seller and, and your bias is right out there on your sleeve, whatever, it's harder to get the SEC to engage in it uh, for whatever reason. If you are not perceived to have one, which is ridiculous because everybody does. I've often said to people, I mean, I don't know what your problem is with, with my model. Is it that I pay myself to do my job or how much I pay myself to do my job? Because <laughs> kind of everybody's getting paid to do their job. I think that I think the counter argument that the SEC people who are less favorable to short sellers would be this. Yeah. There are some people who can get paid as a short seller, even when they're wrong, even when the, what they have is not true. It's essentially something that could scare people but not be legitimate. And well, that, that, look, that is, that's, that's a blight on, on the industry itself. I mean, and I, I think this is not a, an unknown thing. I don't like most activist short sellers and they don't like me. So for a number of reasons, even going to Congress and trying to stop the China hustle kind of a thing, they're just like, what are you doing? You're taking an opportunity away from us. This is how we make money. But the idea that you never get any of that money clawed back from China. So the money we're making comes from our family, our neighbors, our friends, has never sat very well with me. But you're right. A, a, lot of, a lot of these, you have to be a bit crazy to be a short seller to begin with, uh, I think. I feel like I fell into it, so I fall out of that category. Nor do I have the talent that many of these technical traders have. I never claimed to have that. But Everybody does have their bias, and if they've, if they've lied and if they've said something wrong and they purposely made a profit on it, they should get their ass rung up, period. Well, the, well that, that part, I will tell you that I think that short sellers are, are, are more vulnerable to prosecution uh, than many other types of, of individuals sure. just because they, they, they are higher profile the companies are more motivated to expose what they perceive to be um, uh, kind of inappropriate behavior. The other thing that I think put aside for legitimate short activist short sellers, one of the challenges I see today is the companies are a lot better at responding to, to short reports than they have ever before. 
they must have gotten together at, at, at some sort of conference and figured out what the best practices are because they're much better at it. And as a result, I think it's harder to break through the public conscious consciousness uh, to, to get them to see how bad things are at a particular company. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's much more dangerous for us because like, if you're long and wrong, you were just overly optimistic. That's fine. But yeah. if you're short and wrong, you're lying and crying fire in a crowded theater or something of the sort. So be careful out there. If you are a junior detective, short seller in waiting, it's, you know, I just had one of my lawsuits dropped last week. Well, not dropped. It went to it actually went to the appellate court in New York and was affirmed that it was dismissed. But that's what we deal with on a daily basis, right? We're getting sued with shareholder money uh, from a fraudulent company, and they are getting better at responding. The best companies don't respond at all. They, you know how they respond, Jordan? They run their business well, and their stock price goes up. That's the best response, unless there's some salacial lie happening out there, right? You've got to respond to that. But I found that the best responses for most companies is to short, sweet, and then go back to running your business really well if that short seller is wrong. But we'll see what happens in the, in the coming weeks, months, and years with the new administration and the new SEC uh, chairman. Jordan, do you have any final thoughts for us? Um, you've been a really, really informative and entertaining guest. I like your passion. I hope the SEC is listening and they take some of your suggestions about, about prosecutions. But what else would you say? I'm hopeful that, that we will see greater securities enforcement over the next four and eight years uh, from whatever administration's in power. And I think that if Congress and the regulators work together, uh, they'll have the powers and resources to do that. Well, that's good. I'm hopeful, too. And I'm hopeful for the new administration. I'm hopeful for our new president, whether you voted for him or not. You have to root for him, right, because he's our president. You want him to do well. Sometimes, you know, rooting for him is, is respectful disagreement, right, but respectful. And be part of the solution. Being part of some kind of revolt, army, whatever, I'm thinking about the person who bought GameStop at 400 bucks. Well, they're listening to everybody saying, hell no, we'll never sell. Well, it's 50 bucks now. So that can happen again. Be careful out there. Jordan, thank you for joining us. I hope I hope in the future, as we, you know, have some expert panels on here discussing topics that are in your bailiwick that you'll consider joining us because I think you bring a great expertise from inside the DOJ, from inside the SEC, to now being, you know, in private practice for a law firm I can't pronounce. Uh and and even taking the action, which I could see, like, you know, listeners can't see what I'm seeing, uh, but Jordan and I could see each other. The pain on his face when he talks about the lawsuit that he has with the SEC, it really was, in my opinion, uh, an avenue of last resort, but willing to do it. So being on all sides of it for the client, I applaud you for that. And, and thank you very much, Jordan. Well, thanks for having me on your show. I look forward to coming back. And thank you all for listening uh, to uh, the Wolfpack and the Wolf Den. If you like what you heard, please retweet us. Give us a like. Thanks.